This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast with me, Kim Ann Curtin, and Lucas Peterson. How are you, Lucas? I'm doing very well. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Very excited today because we have Eric Greshner, who is a longtime friend and colleague who I haven't seen in person in probably nine years. <laughs> Eric, thank you for coming on the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Anytime, Kim. Thanks for having me a thousand times over. Uh, I'm just so glad you're here. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of his formal bio, but then I'm going to tell you some other things about Eric that make him very special to me and my heart. Uh, and I really am excited too for our listeners today Eric, to hear you because as traders who primarily listen to us, I don't know that they have as much exposure to the wisdom that you have as I think would be in their best interest. So I'm excited for you to be able to be a contribution to them today, uh, which is part of why I wanted you on this podcast. We've never had anybody with your specialty featured before, and I just felt it was really important to have you here. So who is Eric, everyone? Well, Eric worked on Wall Street as an institutional research analyst and market strategist. He provided analysis to clients, including up and higher Oppenheimer, T. Rowe Price, Fidelity, uh, institutional pension funds, and hedge funds. He also played a really integral role in advisory meetings and conference calls with portfolio managers from Morgan Stanley and countless others, uh, doing stock market strategy and doing individual stocks selection. He is an investment advisor representative. He is a wealth manager, and he's also the managing partner at Ugada Research and Money Management. Eric is also a fee-only advisor, which is part of why Eric is in my book. He is one of the Wall Street 50 featured in my book, and he is what I believe is a conscious capitalist. So thank you, Eric, for being here today. Oh, anytime. Again, thank you for having me. I was really excited when you sent the invitation. You know, one of the things that I think traders maybe neglect is their own financial long-term strategy uh, outlook. They, they have, I believe, a tendency to be so in the day-to-day -day of their trading that they perhaps don't give as much time, energy, thought towards their long-range goals, especially those who are on the younger side. So, you know, tell us what, what's your advice to them potentially being willing to consider this, the importance of their long-term investing? Well, uh, absolutely. One, one of the issues with um, trading from a shorter term perspective is that the cash flow issues could be highly variable. Um, sometimes it could be fairly streakish. You get on a rather lengthy good run and you, the profits can be quite high. On the other hand, that could end fairly quickly. It could also be clumpy. They may have long dry spells and all of a sudden the gains or the losses come at work. 
it's also dependent on the macro trading environment. Uh, the market's been quite strong since the bottom right after COVID-19, but valuations and potentially even inflation can be a strong headwood going forward. It can make it more challenging. Uh, drawdowns are another big risk. Uh, they can be infrequently, but potentially catastrophic if you're not prepared, both from a trading management perspective and also from a budgeting and a cash flow perspective. Yeah. And rather, the high variability, the relative lack of persistency and income generation from a trading and or investing uh, perspective can be an issue, particularly if you have higher fixed costs like your mortgage, uh, uh, rent, car notes, tuitions, etc. And a quick little story, um, yeah. working as an analyst on Wall Street back in 1996, and I was considering a job as a trader in order to sort of flesh out my resume. And I interviewed for a job at the World Trade Center and I was offered to it. And the person who offered me the job shared with me this anecdote that even though they did all the screenings on a rigorous educational background in this particular space, they wanted experience, they had a mentoring program, all the software and computer powering back in 1996 at their beck and call, and we're in a bill market, they still had a 90% attrition rate. Now, for a number of reasons, I'm obviously very glad I didn't take that job, but that stuck with me. Um, if you've got a bad run or the market crashes, you could wind up pretty quickly in a precarious situation from a cash flow perspective if you don't get it organized in advance. And one of the basic ways to do this, a very fundamental but nevertheless often overlooked one, is to get a written budget. No matter how sophisticated, no matter how successful of an investor or a trader you are, getting a written budget will help you in several ways. It's, it'll increase your savings for number one. Number two, it'll help you achieve Pisa, your life will take on a whole new meaning if you're not stressed out about money. And if that said it isn't enough, you could even literally get healthier by getting control of your financial life. And I'll share this real quick, Kim. There was a yeah. study by Aline Cho at the University of Virginia and Psychological Science showed that feelings of financial insecurity lead people to literally report high levels of physical pain. And there's a growing body of research that shows that people who feel less in control of their lives are at higher risk for physical health problems. And creating a budget will help you start getting control of your life again. And just quickly, the idea is to aggregate, smooth out, and analyze, looking for places you can reduce your expenses and increase your savings, and then link it up to your goals and your values. Um, many aren't sure how to do this, and they have a lot of conflicting feelings, but it's been my experience over more than 20 years of teaching students and you know, working with my financial planning clients that this very simple blocking and tackling is often ignored, but it's one that could often reap the greatest amount of dividends. Yeah. What, what do you feel is the reason there is resistance around doing that for anybody? 
Um, I, I think a lot of it is that people just sort of overlook it. They say, oh, I don't really need to do this. I've got it kind of roughly in my head. I do it on the back of the envelope. It's a time issue. Um, yeah. It's also kind of a, a relative attractiveness issue. I mean, most of us would, would rather go for a walk in the park or go walk with the dog than sitting down an Excel spreadsheet or some type of software program. Um, so a lot of us know we need to do it, but we keep pushing it further and further um, into the background. We should do it, but we don't do it. And that often winds up leading us to never getting it done. And it can lead to confusion, potential internal conflict as we're trying to balance out multiple completing values, multiple competing goals. It leads to ambiguity and sometimes even a loss of confidence in, in order to uh, deliver the goal of living our lives on our own terms. Yeah. If, if I, so if I want to start um, just tracking and, and, and maybe building that budget, uh, written budget, um, what, are, what are the things you think are, are necessary to take into account there? And what maybe is, you, I can kind of have as like miscellaneous expenses. Perfect. Um, it, it's, it's even more simple than most of us realize, right? I mean, just start off with listing your expenses and break them down. Start off with the, those that are fixed, right? The ones that you know every month. Uh, what is that? Your rent, your mortgage, your student loans, whatever it is. And then number two, you have your variable ones. A classic example of that is heating during the winter or, you know, uh, air conditioning during the summer. But what you want to do is take those out break them out over a year, sum them up, and then divide them by 12. And what you're doing is you're smoothing that out. And the goal is so you're not caught unaware. When there's a spike like we're seeing right now in, in energy prices, you're not being forced to go and put items on your credit card or dip into your investment budget in advance, right? So start with your fixed, then take your variable and smooth them out, and then you have those miscellaneous ones, right? Um, I have a big trip coming up that I've been dreaming about going with my friends on, backpacking, you know, out to Wyoming, for example. You want to make sure you factor those in as well, as well as, you know, any philanthropic or charitable givings. These are all important. Yep, yep, for sure. What, what regarding, you know, just investment strategy, I, I think there are those people, you know, not just among traders, but people who say, well, I'm young. I don't have to have an investment strategy now because I'm so young. Is, is that true? And if it isn't, well, what, how can you back that up for those who perhaps think I'm too young for an investment strategy? Uh, and you mean like a financial plan or a, yeah. 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 Oh. to, to, to have a plan for, you know, the golden years. A lot of times I think some people don't want to even think about that because they feel they're too young and not needing, it's not necessary to have that even in place. Right. Hey, this is how we, first of all, that's a great question. And secondly, this is how we respond to this one. Um, number one, it's certainly true that you're young and so many things can change. You may be single and then you get married, you have children, you know, health issues that come up, career changes, etc. But you don't know for you know, that will probably happen. But on the other hand, it may not. But here's the other big item. A financial plan is a process. There's education involved in it. So by going, there's a value just through going through the process. What age do I want to retire at? Well, I'm 
25 years old right now. I may not want to retire till I'm 60. Well, you will learn, well, how much do I have in assets? How much do I need to save? What are the probabilities I'm supposed to, you know, in order to achieve my goals? How much should I have in stocks? How much should I have in bonds? What's the most I'm willing to put in loss? And how much should I factor in for inflation? Yeah. Well, those, those concepts, those educational concepts are very valuable to start learning on. And when you're younger, it's actually much more simple. And as you get older and you throw in multi-generational families, um, and we all typically become wealthier as we get older, right? You're gonna have multiple houses, multiple businesses, private equity, hedge funds, startups, venture capital, the whole nine yards. It gets much more complicated and it's much easier to start off just like you do in school. You're a freshman, you're a sophomore, you're a junior and a senior. You don't start off in graduate school. Right, exactly. Learn the terms, the nomenclature, the concepts, the risk, and those financial plans also start, they provide accountability. Starting points and measuring points and metrics. So if you're 25, you have a financial plan and then you go and meet with your financial planner at age 26, you see what you've made progress on and what you haven't. Those simple blocking and tackling skills are completely scalable. And the earlier you start out on the better. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I love the accountability concept because I feel when there is accountability, the game changes. You know, Absolutely. somebody's looking at you, going to ask questions, going to see what you're spending your money on. And that forces you to look at what you're spending your money on. Absolutely. That perhaps you weren't. Uh, you know, you let me interview you for my book. And I remember how you spoke specifically to, you know, the, the particular chapter that I featured you in is around being morally tested. I wonder if you'd be willing to share, and you know, I can remind you if you don't remember, but you probably do, when you were morally tested, when you first went into finance, um, and how you navigated what was asked of you at that firm uh, that wanted you. Do, do you remember that story? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'll share the anecdote. Um, I had, um, it was my first job working at a brokerage firm. I just graduated from law school, and before I got my job as an analyst, and um, I was what I thought the financial planning field was was very different from what the actual reality was. And we're going to go back. This is 1995, and so we're going to take a a time machine back. Things have changed in the right direction, but they're still not where they should be. Certainly not have the medical profession and the legal profession are from an ethical perspective. Um, but um, we were told to go ahead and uh, sell commission annuities with high commissions and uh they we were told to promote them from this one particular company we would win vacations and all kinds of prestige among the other fellow financial planners if we did this etc and i just did not feel that this particular annuity was a good fit for my client and i, I would have made it was fairly sizable i would have made you know when you're 25 years old at 1995, a $30,000 commission is not insignificant. It's nothing to sneeze at. But I thought it was a, a, a poor investment, um, and B, I didn't like that it wasn't done for the best interest of the client. It was all done for the best interest of the annuity company and the best interest of the brokerage firm, so I refused to do it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And how and how did that go over by your company and those people listening on the calls? Uh, that's it didn't go over well at all. Um, but I was OK with that. I, 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 it's not the right thing to do. And number two, um, you know, you need, you need to focus in any field, in any relationship on the relationship, not the transaction and focus in the long term. My commitment was to the client, not to the, not to the brokerage firm, yeah. not to that particular investment. And, that's, and it's often inverted, even in today's world, right? So um, I, I just passed on it, and I wound up working as an analyst on Wall Street, and then I came back and opened up my own firm in Louisiana in 1998. And because I wanted to be, be a fiduciary, I set up a registered investment advisory firm, and no commissions, no transaction fees, you only work for the clients, full transparency, no self-dealing. And to my knowledge, uh, we were the first one in the state of Louisiana in 1998 wow. to wow. do that. And that client, and I told them why I wouldn't take their business, they never forgot that. And that client provided me the seed money to get my regatta started, and they a large sum of money. It, it wasn't you know, just several hundred thousand dollars. Um, it, it was about a million and a half dollars, which, you know, I had, he was my third client, my dad and my mom, and then him, right? But wow. he, he never forgot that. And I turned down the business, and it, 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 he never forgot that. Amazing. I mean, you don't forget that when you are in a sea of people who are not going to tell you what's in your best interest. So for that way of operating, tell us just, how many financial advisors are built like you, Eric? Like, there's not that many who do it the way you do it. Um, I, I would well, if you're if you're talking purely about the alignment of incentives, so to speak, like how they're paid, um, it has grown. It was very, very few when I first started. We were sort of pioneers at that juncture. Um, however, it's increased fairly considerably. I would say it's probably about 20 to 25% of the business at, at this juncture, which is a huge step in the right direction. However, the brokerage firms, the insurance companies, the banks are fighting it tooth and nail. They don't make as much money with this particular system. You charge a fat, flat fee, a small percentage of the assets under management. You're not paid by anyone else. If the client makes more money, you make more money. If they make less, you make less. They all want those fat big commissions up front. And the focus is on the transaction fee, and it's not on the relationship, and it's not on the client. And they've been fighting the government for decades in order not to make that mandatory. Yeah. Yep. And I remember you taught me way back when that actually the UK has been doing it like that for years, and yet we are still the last man on the boat with this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they've been very very proactive with best practices throughout Europe. Um, so that is a huge step in the right direction. I wish we could emulate them, but we are gradually making progress, but it's been really slow um, fits and starts. But we are making progress, now, unfortunately, for the minority. Yeah, for sure. Now people very well may want to reach out to you. Tell them how they can reach out to you. Um, we have our website. It's regattaresearch.com, uh, like sailing regatta, R-E-G-A-T-T-A, research.com, or just email me, uh, eric at regattaresearch.com. Beautiful. And if people are just hearing about this concept of having somebody who doesn't have a conflict of interest, 
if they themselves maybe are like, wait a minute, I don't know if my uh, advisor, what are the questions that you would suggest they want to get familiar with so they can ask, they can find out what are the important? Oh, just, just ask them simply how, how are they licensed and how are they paid? If they tell you that they're paid a flat percentage of fees under management and they're a fiduciary and believe me, they will tell you people in my space who take this approach are rightfully so very proud of the way of managing that client relationship. If they tell you it's commissions, well, that's a concern. The other concern is that there's been this movement toward this hybrid approach where they receive fees for some investments that they sell and commissions for other investments that they sell. But they're not necessarily required to disclose to you what they're paid on a relative basis. And that creates its own entire conflicts of interest. Yeah. What if one of them, my best interest is to you, but for this one, I don't have a best, I'm not required to have you as my best interest. I'm allowed to engage in self-dealing. I'm allowed not to disclose fees yeah. and incentives, et cetera. Uh, that's very problematic and quite, they're called hybrid advisors. And quite a few studies have shown that that's very problematic. Um, and it often leads to higher fees in worse outcomes and conflicts of interest for investors. So um, we typically recommend, and we can do anything we wanted to, we're completely independent, that they go with fee-only fiduciary advisors, not hybrids, and certainly not commission advisors. There's wonderful people in every space, but when there's incentives from a legal perspective, um, in order not to be fully transparent, not to have the best interest, that creates, if not even conscious problems, I think subconscious conflicts of interest. Absolutely, absolutely. Because, because for anybody, we're all constantly influenced by our relationship to money. And even yeah. if we want to be doing the right thing, we can still have our unconscious potentially, you know, rationalize uh, away what is in the client's best interest if we don't have that commitment right out of the gate. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What else do you feel is important? You know, our audience is primarily day traders. We do have a collection of people who are very sophisticated who watch us and those perhaps who are just beginning. What is something across the board that you feel in your own experience uh, with talking to traders do they need to pay attention to the top one or two things they need to pay attention to for themselves, either financially or otherwise, that they face in this very interesting market we've had? Right. Um, number one, I would focus on your portfolio's construction, not just the trading component, but the rest of it. Um, the last thing you want to do is, is, is be very successful in one particular space. But if the tides, the macro tides start to turn against you, no matter how successful you are, you can wind up really running into issues. And I suggest having, in addition to a budget, in addition to a financial plan, a diversified portfolio. And that means inter and intra asset class diversification, not just stocks, bonds, and cash, but small cap stocks, mid-sized caps, large caps, et cetera, foreign domestic within the bonds. And um, I mean, this is a sophisticated audience, and you all are as well. So I know a lot of us are concerned about, you know, the classic 
60% stock, 40% bond portfolios, and the valuation headwinds that we may have on a secular basis over the next five or 10 years. And um, the public markets, particularly the domestic ones, may face more challenges. You may have to, according to a lot of the long-term uh, prognostications, which we call the long-term capital market assumptions, the investment banks, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, GMO, et cetera, put these out every year and it says, look, out of 120 investment segments, what are the long-term projected returns? Seven, 10, or 15 years. And this is before inflation, the projected returns for US stocks are the single digits, low single digits. That's a significant headwind, right? So where can you find in the publicly traded markets? Well, guess where that is? That's in emerging markets. That's specifically in emerging market value stocks. Those are typically not spaces that most traders play in. However, they may need to keep an open mind and start, start exploring those other areas. And the other thing from a, an overall asset allocation perspective is that, of course, we all know the public markets are very efficient. A lot of information is in the marketplace. Where can you make money? There's been a lot of the studies, a lot of the research, a lot of long-term assumptions are actually in the private markets. Think private equity. Think private credit. Think private real estate. You can't really trade in that space, right? So what you're giving up is a liquidity and trading for an illiquidity premium. Yes, yes. So that's so we're not saying don't give up trading, right. but you may want to start considered not on that one little niche, but on other areas. And in many cases, the projected returns in the private market are significantly higher, twice as much, if not higher, than they are in the publicly traded market. Is the Todd Index something I know that you've, you know, more recently started to get involved in one of them? Right. Uh, and uh, just a little bit of quick background about yes, it. Please. Um, I co-invented it with my partner. He's a professor at FAU and a visiting professor at Oxford in the UK. And what we're trying to do is locate neighborhoods that are highly walkable, that are close to, uh, I think, transportation nodes like a, a commuter rail lines are the classic example, but it's not just that. And locating real estate and seeing what is it performed on a historical basis and is it have predictive value. And in the historic basis, it's historically beat the market with less risk. I mean, I applied hedge fund metrics to private real estate data on a national basis. Um, and it also has predictive power. Yeah. So this is a place to lo locate private real estate. And I, I work in multiple asset classes as a financial advisor of stocks, bonds, uh, alternatives, private real estate, hedge funds, et cetera. And real estate is very inefficient, even in this day and age, very inefficient with significant opportunities. But what's often missing is a, a Wall Street hedge fund type process for locating these in a quantitative, systematic fashion, and then applying, you know, information ratios, Rotino ratios, a sharp adjusted returns, better to these, and that's what we did. And then we locate the top neighborhoods across the country, and then narrow it down, and then get to more granular and try and locate those properties that offer the most attractive opportunities in private real estate. And what you find is oftentimes, not always of course, but a tendency for greater returns, less risk, 
higher correlations and lower volatility, and greater certainty as to outcome, because you can often control the outcomes much better. Yep, for sure. Uh, what, how, how else could somebody start to consider this concept of going more towards a private uh, direction for their, just to be more diverse in the way they invest their money? Um, I'll share this with you. It's a little bit challenging in the private space, but there's been huge strides that have been made. And let me share with you. In the past, you could only invest in, for example, most hedge funds that were high quality and best practices if you're a qualified purchaser. That means $5 million net worth. Well, that excludes significant amounts of the population. Okay. And then there was nothing available even for credit investors. And a huge step, they're starting to make this available to credit investors. Yeah. The other issue is that the lockup times are long, 8 to 12 years. Well, right. those are starting to be reduced for credit investors, just a million dollars net worth or $200,000 income over the last two years and projected to do so in the future for an individual and three hundred for a family. Um, that, that really broadens the door. But they've lowered it to $50,000 or $25,000 in many cases and also significantly reduced the illiquidity period. The downside is that you often have to go through a financial advisor like me uh, to get it. You can't really go direct with it. So there's an intermediary involved is, the, is, is maybe the downside of it. But the good side of it is they are making products that are meeting best practices finally. And that's one of the, one of the big reasons of income inequality. Only the very wealthy get access to the very best. And I think it's frankly a little bit paternalistic and intellectually lazy on the part of the regulatory bodies, in not all cases, but many cases, not to make this available with proper vetting and proper requirements to the mass affluent. It's, it's, they don't do that in Europe, but they do that here. And uh, I'll lay that at their feet. But that's, that's in the hedge fund space. Um, uh, in the private real estate, there's been a massive change over the last few years. There's something called Reg A, um, and they're allowing these crowdfunding private institutional real estate to be available. You've probably heard of the platforms, Fundrise, CrowdStreet, et cetera. Not advocating any of the platforms, they're just using them to, like as an archetype, McDonald's or, right. you know. Uh, um, and what they're doing is democratizing with a lowercase d access to private institutional quality vetted due diligence on projects. This includes hotels, multifamily properties, uh, industrial, e-commerce, warehousing, etc. There's been an explosion of this. There's literally hundreds of deals now every single month across multiple platforms that are available for accredited investors and oftentimes the investment minimums are $25,000. But the problem is, is that you're like the dog chasing the ice cream truck. This is finally available, not just to pension funds, right. not just to insurance companies, not just the family offices, it's available to all of those accredited investors. Yeah. You catch the ice cream truck you've been chasing, now what do you do with it? It's overwhelming and, and um, this is actually, we had the same problem ourselves and we created a, a solution for it. Um, I talked to you about the TOD index. We did the same, we actually launched a fund off of it that takes these crowdfunded real estate investments, screens them by best geographies, best locations, mm -hmm. best attributes, and then does a bottoms up 
from the boots on the ground, valuations, projected rents, cap rates, et cetera. And we literally picked the very best of it. And we rolled that out to accredited investors. It just launched. The focus is on walkable, livable, resilient, carbon reduction, while making doing good while making money. So there's significant opportunities. And we're the first one in the entire country to go ahead and do this. That's awesome. Congrats for doing it. And do you, what do you attribute your ability to be a pioneer multiple times in your career? What, what informs that, Eric? Um, I'll, I'll actually share this with you. It, it links to being a trader, like what maybe you should consider uh, doing in addition to what you're doing. Um, a lot of traders are um, either solo or in very close-knit cohorts. Right, so they're they're highly specialized and highly knowledgeable, but that they they're not necessarily associating with people and making connections in different spaces, different specialties, different fields. And you've all we've all studied and read articles about the benefits of being in a, in a city. Right, there's so many different people in close proximity, so you get a multiplier effect. And I think by maybe being in our own little niches too much. Mm -hmm not cross fertilizing yes. and there's an ability to build a team around you of successful people that are complementary, that are also mutually supportive. And that's one of the big things with the traders. I often see them going in alone and solo, uh, but they should build a field around them of experts, mentors, friends, supporters that are dedicated to their success and they're getting that ricardian law of comparative advantage right um if you make you make hats and lucas makes wine and you know uh, i i grow crawfish uh, you know you should not grow crawfish i should not make wine we do what we're very best at and the sum is bigger than the parts and i i, I intentionally um, seek those teams, those people, those resources out on a proactive basis. And I think that has really led to a lot of it. Because, you know, a lot of my partners are, are in very different fields, but they're, they're very highly accomplished. And we get together and say, what if we did X? And what if we did Y? What if we did Z? Gosh, these all string together. And each one of us by ourselves could not have executed it or brought the product to the finish line. Yep. Yep. And, and I think back to, you know, just your conversations with me about your study of philosophy and how much that impacted you when you were studying uh, in university. And I, I just can't help but think that informs your approach. Like you, you really know how to stand in multiple perspectives. And that to me feels, it, how could that not inform you're seeing what others didn't see, even at that firm you first started out when they asked you to do something, every one of your colleagues said yes, but you didn't. Like, is it philosophy? Is it something else that gives you this, the lens you look at the world with? I, Kim, that is a great question. I don't, I don't know if I, I've never, maybe, I don't really know. You just kind of take it for granted, right? Like, oh, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's just the way it is, I guess. I don't know. But um, perhaps, you know, looking back, it, it's maybe, you know, just a, a number of things. And I look back and say, you know, over my course of my life, you know, what are the things that had 
maybe the biggest impact in shaping how you think in the philosophy? And there's a few things. Um, I, 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 one of my minors was in debate in logic, and they would require us to take different, the other, the, you take one side and debate it, and then you're required to take the other side and debate it, and then you have your primary arguments, your secondary arguments, and your tertiary arguments, and before you know it, you start trying to anticipate, well, how does it, what are their arguments going to be? What are they going to think? I'm going to be in their shoes, right? That may seem, it's not actually philosophical, but it's very almost procedural. And that practice, that training is very conducive. The second thing I would share with you is, is probably the ones that influenced my, me the most was on, you know, Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, I, I just deeply infused myself in their writings of the famous 19th century American philosophers, by abolitionists and uh, probably early nature movements. Um, uh, wrote Walden and on civil disobedience and essays as well. Um, I even went to um, Walden Pond in Massachusetts to go visit, you know, where his cabin was, and that really had a profound influence on me in my entire life. And a lot of it is focused on self-reliance, independent thinking, not being part of the crowd, being your own self-made person. Um, those I think were multiple streams that perhaps sort of um, ebbed and flowed and then converged yeah. just over the tour course of time in my career. But the other final one is that I, I noticed that before this, my thinking was maybe perhaps not as rigorous and it tend to maybe lurch a little bit, so to speak. And in yeah. going to law school for three years of constant drilling and polishing your arguments in a framework and process, took what I thought was pretty rough hewn and, and I think made it more kind of formula in the good way, yeah. a process yeah. of logic, deduction, combined with trying to be creative and look for solutions and empathy and those good values, those, those good virtues that we all aspire to. Yeah, yeah. You know, what, what something you said a little earlier that really spoke to me especially for our audience of traders is your experience in the debate classes where you are forced to have understanding about both sides is something i think is so important for traders you know one of the things i'll say if i'm coaching one is there's somebody on the other side of your trade that thinks his way is the right way. And if you don't really have that intimate knowledge of why he might think that or she might think that, you potentially are missing something. In oh, absolutely. It goes, it, we're all human and then it, it bleeds into the behavioral science biases that we're all make and studying those, we're all susceptible to them. Are you ignoring information? Are you so invested in this concept that you're ignoring information that is potentially detrimental to the trade? It also gets into overconfidence. It also gets into risk management. Uh, that's one of the big things we focus on to see what can possibly go wrong in this particular trade and this particular investment. Um, list them all and then there's always the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns and if those transpire what is my maximum stop loss how am i going to get out how i'm going to hedge myself how do i preserve my trading capital they're all interrelated intellectually 
Yeah, yeah. And yourself, Eric, when you perhaps notice uh, things about yourself or your perspective or how you're maybe too attached, how do you keep yourself coming back to neutral? <laughs> I have a one-year-old. <laughs> <And, laughs> that says it all. That's, I all of a sudden, uh, you know, I <laughs> work into my office and I hear Bob, 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 Bob knocking on my door. We say, what is Ba Ba Ba? And if someone asked me, my name would be Baba. <laughs> when I was growing up, I'd have had no idea what I would have never ever thought that. <laughs> ba is Vietnamese for daddy. That's so beautiful. That's my so wife beautiful. is Vietnamese, and so my children learn Vietnamese and they call me Ba 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 Ba. So uh, that keeps me very much in the moment. And and here's the thing about it, Kim. You love your work. Lubes loves your work. There's a passion. There's a love that goes with it. You don't have to tell me that. I can feel it. I can see it. And I'm sure with many of your listeners and traders, there's a passion for it. But all of it, we could be thinking about the next trade, always in the future. Or we're putting our head on the pillow at night thinking about that past trade. And it's often not the ones that we were successful at. It's the ones that we beat ourselves up with that we could have, would have, should have. And it's, sometimes it's hard to be in the moment, but um, you know uh, that's one of the things that you know. Not everyone is in that position, of course, but it works. And, and uh, the other thing too is we try and spend as much of our time as we can possibly um, in the outdoors. I don't know if I ever told you this, Kim. We've got a I've got a jeep, and we go overlanding with it with a rooftop tent. I've got a. Oh winch on it i've got a, a a redneck snorkel on it and we have my boy my four-year-old knows how to operate the winch um on the on the jeep and we also have recovery boards or boards that go under it and we've got a shovel in the back and my four-year-old can change the oil with me in the car he could he knows how to operate the air compressor pump and uh, he helps me and he's four so it's not you know he does a little bit <laughs> You dig the wheels out when they get stuck. So that's our way of getting out and, and being in the moment with things. That's awesome. that's awesome. It's not what I saw you doing, Eric. But it's not what I thought. So <laughs> yeah, I, I went. I went from going to the opera and, and to the symphony to changing the. And here's the thing: I don't take it to a shop. I want to feel it with my. I want to feel it with my fingers working on the car. So uh, we, we work on the car ourselves at Outfit. And um, I got to tell you, it's it's completely different. But I tell you what, you know, life, things change over the course of time and we embrace them. And all of us, you ever thought we've all evolved and changed and hopefully the better over the time. And you look back and you say, goodness gracious, I'm a much different person than I was 10 years ago. And we all have done that. And those just take time and a little bit of love and passion, you know. For sure, for sure. Eric, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing your wisdom, for being the kind of human being you are. You are one of those conscious capitalists you were when I met you way back when, and you still are today. And, it, and it's just further evidence and hopefully encourages the listeners to be able to conceptualize they need to come out sometimes from that micro focus and and listen to like there is a bigger game here the money game is a big freaking game and you've got your expertise but you've got to make sure you have other experts in your sphere so that you can be as you know 
wise and pragmatic for whatever the future holds. And Absolutely. You, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, we, the term that we use is building your financial dream team. Yeah. Build that ecosystem around or orbit whether it's mutually beneficial for everyone involved, but consciously seek it, proactively seek it. And that way you're getting that classic lever action, right? You're lifting much more weight than you could just by yourself. Um, that, that is one of the big catalysts, that I, one of the big tools that's very simple, but often overlooked that I think many of the traders may really benefit of, but a thousand times over. Uh, Kim, thank you so much. Lucas, thank you so much. Uh, uh, you guys have a wonderful day, and uh, always if there's anything else I could do to help for you. you guys, any of your, your listeners to the podcast, whatever, please never hesitate to reach out to me. I'd always like to act as a resource. Well, we'll put all your information in the liner notes uh, for this so that people can reach out to you and, you know, learn more about you. And of course, you know, I think they should read your interview in my book, Transformer. <laughs> that interview with you is quite robust and you give a lot of specifics. So thank you, Eric. Hopefully yeah, you'll you. come back on in the future. This I would week. love to. Bye, Lucas. Bye, Cam. Bye, y'all. Aloha. Thank you so so much. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.